Hello, folks, and welcome back to Grit and Glitter, a weekly podcast, well, most weeks, dedicated <laughs> to the power of women's wrestling. No new episode last week because, I don't know, I don't know, it just, I did 90 minutes, and it was great, it was funny, it was charming, it was our Valentine's Day special, and then I go to edit it and post it, and hey, there's just me. Where are they? Where are my guests? Not recorded. I don't know why. Yeah, it's so sad. I feel like you have this great streak where you've gotten to talk to a bunch of like different like wrestling couples and this carried on through this year, but no one gets to hear that episode because it didn't record properly. And I'm really sad because I didn't get to hear it either. The Lost Grid and Glitter episode, the original episode 232, me, Abby Jane and Pancakes talking about wrestling weddings, one for the history books, folks. This Uh, week, my name is Harley Vasquez, her name is M. Fear, and we are back in the chairs, back to back to standards. So hopefully everything will be going smooth this week. Back to standards. Yeah, that's right. We're bringing back the standards. We've got standards here. This week we were thinking, okay, so a lot of scandals, a lot of revelations in the past month. We had Janelle Grant filing her lawsuit against Vince McMahon, John Laurinaitis, and WWE. Then we had John Laurinaitis turn around and uh, turn stooly and start airing out some of Vince's dirty laundry on his own end and saying things like, uh, oh, uh, WWE was well aware of Ashley Massaro's claims and then Ashley Massaro's lawyers released some more of her affidavit that uh, she had released back in the day. And uh, just a lot, a lot more dirty laundry, a lot more still to come, we're sure. But it's not, it's nothing new, really, and we don't talk about it enough, I guess, really. You don't talk, like... When things like this happen, you hear people chime in with like, oh, well, remember the time Terry Runnels said Brock Lesnar exposed himself to her? Remember Sable quitting the company because of sexual harassment? Remember Sonny getting like m- mercilessly like hazed and tortured by the, the guys in the clique? And you're like, oh, yeah, I do remember that. But it gets glossed over a lot. Yeah, I feel like every story that comes out, people treat it like, there's like a whole contingent of people that treat it like it's the first time they've ever heard anything like this. Like, really? That's so shocking. And it's not. It's not shocking. It's not shocking at all. It's it's never been shocking. It hasn't been shocking for 30, 40 years. It has not been shocking. Every story that comes out is another version, uh, sometimes more horrible, sometimes a little less horrible, all of it horrible, but it's all the same goddamn narrative over and over again. And people like love to pretend like, Oh, well, this is, this is like news. This is big news. This is new news. And it's not, it hasn't been, hasn't ever been. And, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I still get like, I'm, I'm, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago for the Great and Glitter newsletter, but this is making me incredibly angry because I'm seeing people already, already drop the story about what is actually happening with WWE right now and doing exactly what the company wants them to do, which is talk about the storylines that are happening. And I get it. A lot of these people are, like, paid wrestling journalist professionals. These are people, like, some some of their livelihood does depend on them actually covering what is happening in the ring and in the stories in WWE. But it just feels like the whole, like, conversation has once again moved on. And what is it going to take? We, we, we have we ha- now have people bringing back out Ashley Massaro's name, and that's great. And necessary and needed and need, like that story should have been way bigger and way more explosive than it was and then it's just going to be gone again and over and over and over 
part of this is why we started our Patreon podcast a couple years ago. Women's Wrestling Entertainment is available for anybody who subscribes to our Patreon, $5 a month. We've done 11 episodes of that series where we've traced the, hi- the history of women in WWE from the very beginning. 11 episodes, we've gone from the beginning of recorded history of pro wrestling up to 1993 so far. Our 12th episode is coming in the next month or two. And we've gone with that series, we do like an hour per episode. We go really in depth. We talk about all the matches. We also talk about the backstage politics, all these things that have shaped the women's division in WWE through the 70s, through the 80s, through the first couple years of the 90s and the first couple years of Monday Night Raw. So for this week, we thought uh, sort of to hype up our forthcoming 12th episode, our big return, and the big return of the women's division. Also to point out that this stuff with Janelle Grant, with Ashley Massaro, is nothing new. Things like this have been going on the entire history of WWE. We would take all 11 episodes, that's like 14 hours of content, and we cram it in to a tight 60 minutes just for you. I don't know if I, we're going to try. <laughs> yes, we're, we're going to do our best to condense a lot of information from many episodes of our history podcast and not exhaust you with the minute details, which if you want those, you should subscribe to our Patreon so that you can have access to those. Yes, the Patreon versions, much more in depth. We do match by match breakdowns. We cover the entire like careers of these women, where they were, what their childhoods were like before they came to WWE, things like that. Here, are sort of the uh, the tentpole arguments, the big the big stories, the big landmarks in the history of the first 30 years of women in WWE. history of women's professional wrestling. Wrestling is one of the oldest sports. It goes back to ancient Egypt, Sparta, the Mayans. Folk wrestling through town and country goes back to at least the 1500s and beyond. In the 1830s, it's really France that sort of creates sports entertainment style wrestling. They take the traditional amateur wrestling and they mix it with like showmanship, like the circus. They give their performers nicknames like Edward the Steel Eater and Gustav the Bone Wrecker. Modern professional wrestling, also known as catch-as-catch-can wrestling, comes to the circus and carnivals of America in the 1850s, just before the Civil War. At the time, women wrestlers will win jewelry as prizes, but, as we'll come to see over the next, oh, 150 years, women's wrestling is usually more about sex appeal than it is about actual athletic competition. 1870 in Detroit is when the first pro wrestling championship is created. It's a 
gold belt buckle for Colonel J.H. McLaughlin, and he then defends the belt buckle in future matches, creating the wrestling championship belt. First female wrestling champion in the United States was Minerva. She was a New Jersey strong woman. She competed in carnivals on vaudeville. The featherweight championship was created for her in 1890, and she holds it. It changes hands over different people over the following decades. The first huge, truly huge name in women's wrestling is Mildred Burke in the 30s and 40s. She's the biggest name in the history of women's wrestling, although at the time, women's wrestling is still basically considered a novelty to most people. So by the 30s and 40s, wrestling's been around for almost 100 years as we know it, but at this time still, women's wrestling is happening in circuses and carnivals, whereas men's wrestling is happening in boxing arenas and proper stadiums. And it's at the point in the 40s where even New York is banning women's wrestling for being unladylike and too dangerous. And then Michigan bans it in California and Pennsylvania. Burke is the champion when the NWA forms in 1948 and things are going okay for a little bit, but her and her husband, Billy Wolf, are hitting heads with each other and the NWA ends up siding with Billy Wolf over Burke. Of course, he's a man. Oh, yeah. And if you're wondering what uh, Mildred Burke and Billy Wolf were fighting about, uh, Mildred Burke would like him to stop beating her and her children and uh, sleeping with many, many other women and cheating and spending all of her money. And Billy Wolf would like to continue doing all of these things. And the NWA doesn't give a hoot about women's wrestling in the 50s either. They think it's embarrassing. They won't let women or midget wrestlers compete on the same cards as the male NWA champion. So when they side with Wolf over Burke... They screw her out of the NWA title, and she says, screw this then. She moves to L.A., and she starts her own promotion, the World Women's Wrestling Association. She becomes the first WWWA champion and begins training her own students. Burke's legacy will end up being huge, because a couple years later, she goes on a tour of Japan with some friends backed by a Japanese newspaper. They wrestle all these shows. They train a bunch of women while they're there. When they leave, women's wrestling in Japan skyrockets, and Joshi Wrestling is born. Mildred Burke is still the godmother of Joshi Wrestling today, to the extent that AJW, when Burke retires, buys her WWA championship and makes it the number one title in AJW. That's right. And Burke students and like her lineage will continue into uh, Japanese uh, professional women's wrestling for, I mean, for like the you know the absolute heydays the the like 70s and 80s and 90s like it's it the legacy continues to follow through and so does the legacy of her students who also continue that that tradition as far as the wwe the company that will become wwe our story really begins with them in 1956 because in 1956 the nwa chose june buyers over mildred burke they screwed burke they put the title on buyers and then within a year or two, they decided, you know what, we don't like buyers either. They screwed her over too. They stripped her of her title, and they put the title on a woman called the Fabulous Moolah. Moolah is a wrestler and a trainer out of South Carolina. She has a school there called Girl Wrestling Enterprises. She's notorious at the time for her shady tactics. She has an obsessive control over her students. She micromanages their appearance, their weight, their personal relationships. She charges them $300 a month, takes 25% of the earnings, and then just basically has the girls train each other, like not really doing anything herself. A lot of women would end up in debt to Moolah because she's taking so much money off the top when they get paid, and also as well as deducting travel expenses and food and rent. 
And she also has a nice little trick where if she notices that you're starting to save up money and it looks like you might be able to take ownership of your own life, she just wouldn't book you for two or three months. So you'd have to spend all your money because you're not working. And then once you're broke, then you're back in her pocket and then everything's good again. She also likes mental games and manipulating people. Women in the gym are pushed past their breaking points until they vomit or collapse. Sandy Parker, who is a lesbian student at Moolah's, says Moolah would pressure her into dating men, but then Moolah would fool around with many of the female students herself. Many former students, uh, Penny Banner, Mad Maxine, Ida Mae Martinez, all say that Moolah trafficked students to promoters and male wrestlers for sex. And if the women refused, they would often be raped, and uh, Moolah would be pissed when they got back home afterwards. Yeah, classy lady. So this is the woman who will become the first WWF Women's Champion, and this is the woman who is very close, good friends with Vince McMahon's father. Keep all that in mind. That's Moolah as a manager and as a trainer. As a wrestler, Moolah is the most hated heel in all of women's wrestling at the time, but it's because she does like the lazy, cheap, shitty, she does eye gouging, hair pulling, she bites, that sort of thing. Now, before Moolah, we had women like Mildred Berg and Claire Mortensen. People loved them because of their wrestling talent, their technical skills. Moolah throws all that out of the window and just this basic catfighting kind of thing. A lot of the other people who came up around the time of Moolah and under her will say that basically Moolah set wrestling back 40 years, women's wrestling. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to say when it comes to that, when it comes to in-ring performance, because so much held women's wrestling back for so long, and Mula as a as a you know behind the scenes as a professional held women's wrestling back for both selfish for mainly all like self gain. Um, so it's hard to like pinpoint like the wrestling itself being the issue, um, but it's certainly not. It's her. It's certainly not not a part. So. Despite this, or because of all this, Mula is the queen of women's wrestling through the 50s and the 60s. She holds the NWA women's title for 27 years. And they do little turnovers here and there, you know, where, like, they'll go to a, a territory, they'll go to another country. She'll lose the title at the start of the tour, and she'll win it back at the end of the tour. And then the promoters and Mula, they'll pretend that that title change never happened. And they'll always just be like, oh, she's been undefeated since 1956. So by the late 70s, she's been champ for 20 years plus, and they actually end up selling her the rights to the NWA women's title. She owns the belt. She owns the title itself. Where our story intersects is with the McMahon family. You start with Jess, Jess McMahon. He's born 1882 in Manhattan. His dad's a hotel owner. They had just moved to America from England. Jess opens an athletic club, he founds a black baseball team, he opens a casino in Harlem, he promotes boxing fights. In 1915, he starts promoting professional wrestling. And he has three kids with his wife, Roderick, Vincent, and Dorothy. Vincent Sr. is born 1914 in Harlem. He basically grows up in Madison Square Gardens. And in the mid-40s, wrestling is starting to take off on television, reaching more people than ever before. So because of television, wrestling has this huge boom in popularity through the 50s, which also interestingly really alters how wrestling is presented too, because now that it's on television, gimmicky kind of characters like Gorgeous George 
become much more important and much more popular and integral to the product than they were before. So Vincent McMahon Sr. sees this and he decides he wants in. He forms the Capital Wrestling Corporation in 1953. He joins up with promoter Toots Mont and within like three years, they're controlling 70% of the NWA's bookings because they have the US Northeast slot. They have New York City and around there. That's the most profitable territory in the States. And they start their own weekly TV show. Seven years later, 1963, they get in a fight with the NWA about who the men's champion should be. So Vince says, fuck all y'all. And he quits the NWA and he forms the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, the WWWF, 1963. Vince Sr. turns out to be a pretty savvy businessman. He uses TV to his benefits and he does a more conservative approach to live events compared to some of the other NWA guys. And he's got Bruno Sammartino, Superstar Billy Grant, Bob Backlund as his top names. So by the end of the 70s, the NWA is really struggling and falling apart, and the WWWF and Vern Gagne's AWA are really taking over. Vince Sr. has two sons, Rod and Vince Jr., born 1945 in North Carolina. But when Vince McMahon Jr. is a baby, Dad leaves and takes his older brother with him. So Vince Jr. is raised under the name Vinnie Lupton by his mom and a string of abusive stepfathers. And that was seemed to be an integral part of his development as a human being. It's not until he's 12 years old that Vince Jr. meets his dad and his older brother for the first time. And then he starts hanging around with them at Madison Square Garden. Vince Jr. desperately wants to be a wrestler, but dad says no, promoters and wrestlers shouldn't mix. So at age 24, Vince Jr. becomes a ring announcer for the WWF, and in 1971, he becomes play-by-play. He'll be in this role for 26 years, play-by-play, up until the Montreal Screwjob, when he's no longer able to continue in that role because of his own choices. So behind the scenes, Vince spends the 70s helping Dad run the WWF. He convinces them to drop a W, WWF, they tripled their TV syndication. In 1982, Vince Sr., who's uh, suffering from pancreatic cancer, sells the company to his son. So in 1983, Vince Jr. decides that he is done with this regional approach to wrestling. He's going to take the WWF National, and he starts poaching talent from other companies, including Hulk Hogan, who's going to make his first huge megastar. A year later, in 1984, is when the fabulous Mulek enters the picture. Moolah sells her NWA women's title to Vince and agrees to appear exclusively for him going forward. The NWA title is scrapped and Moolah is crowned the first WWF women's champion. They say she's champion going back to September 56. She's the undefeated champion for low these many years. And just for good measure, they also signed the NWA women's take champions, Princess Victoria and Velvet McIntyre, and make them the first WWF women's take champions. So this is where we stand going into 1984. We've, the WWF is starting to broadcast all across the country and we have women's champions and a women's division for the first time because Vince just went out and bought all the talent that he wanted. Spring 84. WWF manager Captain Lou Albano meets pop star Cindy Lauper on an airplane. 
Lauper's boyfriend and manager is David Wolf. He's a huge wrestling fan, and he says, Hey, Lou, you should be in Cindy's new music video, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. You can play her dad. And also, it would be really cool if we did some sort of angle with you guys on WWF. Like, maybe you two could both manage two wrestlers, and they could have a match in Madison Square Garden, something like that. So Lou takes the idea to Vince McMahon. Vince loves it. Why wouldn't he? Cindy's, like, multi-time Grammy Award winner already. Her album is all over MTV, all over the radio. She's a huge star. And she came to him saying, let's do business. They do this feud on uh, mostly on Piper's Pit, where Albano is claiming he's Lopper's manager until David Wolf shows up and says, no, you aren't. I am. Cindy finally shows up. She attacks Piper and Lou, hitting them with her purse. Crowd goes insane. It's huge. Cindy Lopper has arrived in the WWF. And at the same time, David Wolf goes to MTV and says, what do you think about doing a live special on MTV, MTV and the WWF together? MTV likes it. They say, great job, Dave. He goes back to Vince. Vince approves it. And they book a match. Fabulous Moolah with Captain Lou in her corner versus Wendy Richter with Cindy Lauper in her corner. Victor is a 22-year-old Texas native. Uh, up to this point, she hasn't really done much in the WWF at any, anything really of note. But Vince needs somebody to pair with Cindy Lauper for this angle, and Wendy is the only young, attractive woman around, really. There's like seven women in the whole company, and most of them look like Moolah. Wendy's young and hip. We'll, we'll, we'll have Cindy give her a makeover, and uh, we'll put them together. Maybe Wendy can be the new Hulk Hogan, the female Hulk Hogan. Yeah, they... they... And this will this will briefly give her um, like an almost on par status with like the bigger male stars of WWF at that point, like very briefly. Well, yeah, because we get this live special live on MTV, the brawl to end it all. It's July 1984. It's on prime time on MTV for the live crowd. They get 11 matches. They get Hulk Hogan versus Greg Valentine, all sorts of things. But on TV, on the live special, only one match airs, and it is Wendy Richter, Fabulous Mula, with Cindy and Lou at ringside. That's huge. That they're getting this live special on MTV, and that's a women's match. And the match, watching back, is incredible. We get we hear girls just want to have fun in the, in the arena. We get to see the women run out to the ring together. Rick, uh, Wendy Richter looks amazing in the, her like pink New Wave gear. Cindy's at ringside. She gets a huge pop. And after 11 minutes, uh, Richter, okay, no, this is, oh, I forgot, this is the one with the stupid finish. Mula basically catches Wendy with a, like a, like a roll up into a bridge and the referee counts three, but then the referee's like, oh, wait a minute, both their shoulders are down, but Wendy's shoulder was up a little bit. So Wendy's the winner. And it's just like this really cheap finish that like doesn't do Wendy any favors, but Mula has to be protected. So... It's whatever. Wendy Richter, new women's champion. Mula's 27-year undefeated streak is over. That's the headline. And at the time, it's the most watched program in the history of MTV. Nine million people tuned in live in July 1984 to watch this match happen. By comparison, the most watched episode of Monday Night Raw ever, like 15 years later, that only drew 8 million people. So more people watch this match than any segment in the history of Raw. Women's wrestling is huge. It's arrived. 
while this is going on, the Take Champs are doing nothing. It is Princess Victoria and Velvet McIntyre. They're just doing stuff on house shows. It's not important. What is important is Princess Victoria taking a botched pile driver from an untrained wrestler during a match. Victoria, after the match, is screaming in pain in the locker room. They put her in a hospital in an ambulance. They send her to the hospital and they take x-rays where they reveal that she's fractured her spine and she can never wrestle again. Not being able to wrestle again, not knowing what to do, Victoria goes back to Mula's school where she's been living when she's not wrestling. Mula says, okay, well, if you can't wrestle, at, at least you can, you know, use your body in other ways. Um, so I've got a bunch of men who would like to see you and spend time with you. And Victoria says, I'm not doing that. So Mula kicks her out of the school, takes back the gear that she gave her. And when the other girls ask, hey, where's Victoria? What happened? Mula says, oh, she's been, she was arrested for cocaine. So these days, Victoria uh, naturally wants nothing to do with WWE. They bl she blames them for her injury and her retirement. And she sometimes st still has to use a wheelchair today, 40 years later. With Victoria gone, they let Velvet McIntyre choose her own partner. She chooses Calgary's Desiree Peterson. Desiree doesn't do anything on TV. They don't do anything with them as a take team. And Desiree says in 2021 that the take titles never got her any more money than she was already getting paid. At the end of 1984, we do this segment at Madison Square Garden with Cindy Lauper and Captain Lou, where they're presented awards for different things. Cindy gets a general award for helping women's wrestling. Lou gets an award for fundraising for multiple sclerosis, and he turns babyface for the first time in 32 years. Then Roddy Piper and Cowboy Bob Orton show up, Mayhem breaks out, Hulk Hogan shows up, he saves the day, and we set up a second MTV special, The War to Settle the Score. That one airs February 85. We don't get any women's matches airing on TV, like, like the previous one, it's just one match, Hogan versus uh, Piper. But it sets a new highest ratings ever for MTV. And in a dark match, Mula helps Leilani Kai steal the women's title from Wendy Richter, and Leilani Kai becomes the new champ. Yeah, so this is in front of a live crowd, but not televised, so those not in witness have to catch up later. Yeah, I think they run synopses or they show photos on the weekly shows afterwards. Yeah. But Leilani Kai becomes the third women's champ. So Kai is a wrestler, not from Hawaii, from Florida. She is just billed as being Hawaiian because Mula met her and was like, oh, you look Hawaiian. We'll give you a lay, we'll give you a floral skirt. You're Hawaiian now, congrats. So this is the thing is Vince is running the WWF and Mula is essentially like head producer for the women's division, probably unofficially. She's basically controlled women's wrestling for 20, 30 years. She's had like an iron grip on most, like 90% of women's wrestling in America. And now she's in WWF, it's the same thing. She, she's the go-between between all the women in events and Pat Patterson, anybody in charge. All the women answer to Mula. Mula seems to be in charge of everything. Leilani tells a story where her and Velvet McIntyre were eavesdropping on Mula and Vince one time. And they hear, Vince gives Mula $150 each for the girls' travel expenses. And they go, okay, okay, let's see, let's wait. And like a couple hours later, Mula comes to them and says, hey, here you are, girls. Vince gave you each $50 for travel expenses. And Leilani says, like, in that moment, I lost all respect for Mula. But we have nowhere to go. WWF is the biggest name in the game right now. 
there's nowhere else like credible to wrestle. Nowhere else pays even the $50 that we're getting here. There's nothing we can do about it. Now, because of these two MTV specials, specifically because there were such huge draws on MTV, Vince decides to do an event called WrestleMania. So we can draw that straight line back and we can say those MTV specials wouldn't have happened if it weren't for Cindy Lauper and David Wolf. They were the ones who went to Vince and said, let's do something together. David Wolf was the one who went to MTV and said, you should have an, a WF Live special on MTV. If those two specials hadn't happened, Vince would not have taken the gamble of spending all the money that he did on promoting WrestleMania. So we can very easily credit Cindy Lauper and David Wolf as being responsible for the legacy of WrestleMania and saying that there would not be WrestleMania today if it weren't for the two of them. Yeah, I mean, and it's worth remembering this because, you know, WWE like, loves its like celebrity guests and its celebrity like guest wrestlers and it, it, it loves using celebrity as a way of pushing pro wrestling ever more into the mainstream um, to to mixed results to to varying degrees. But like this was about as close as you could get to making pro wrestling into like a very mainstream culture. And this is like why pro wrestling became pro wrestling that it was in the like late eighties and into the nineties. And like, it has never really gotten back there since. March 85 is the first WrestleMania. You got Mr. T, you got Muhammad Ali, you got Liberace. You got 1 million viewers on watching. Well, it's like, it's only one compared to the 9 million who watched Wendy win the title, but still it's, it's something. And the women are in a huge spot on this card. It's nine matches. They're the second last match right before Hulk Hogan in the main event. They're treated like a huge deal. Wendy beats Leilani Kai to win the title back. Wendy's the women's champ again. She's being set up to be the female Hulk Hogan. She's getting that push. She's getting that spotlight. She's getting the magazine covers. And on this card, we get Mula basically managing Leilani Kai at ringside. And at this point in her 62-year career, 62-year-old career, that's a good spot for Mula, honestly. Like, having her at ringside be the heel manager who causes shenanigans, that's what Freddie Blassie is doing at this point in his career, is a perfect spot for somebody of her age and her background and her wisdom. Say what you will about her. But for someone like Mula, they cannot be content to sit on the sidelines and watch somebody else have the spotlight. So we come out of WrestleMania and the WWF is mainstream. Hulk Hogan's on Saturday Night Live. He's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Networks are jumping at this. NBC comes to them and says, we want to give you a Saturday night show on the nights that Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live isn't airing. You can have a live wrestling show called Saturday Night's Main Event. CBS comes and says, we want to give you a Saturday morning cartoon. And they put Wendy Richter in the cast with a lot of other men. Wendy Richter and a new wrestler called Mad Maxine. Mad Maxine is a German wrestler. She's 6'4", 169 pounds. She is uh, introduced to Mula through a friend of a friend. And Maxine cuts her hair into a mohawk, like uh, the X-Men character Storm. She is planned to be this next first big like monster heel for Wendy. This is the Hulk Hogan formula. Every month, he, or like every couple of months, he gets a new big monster heel for him to battle and slay. And that's going to be planned for Wendy. We're going to give her Mad Maxine to slay. Before she even wrestles a match, they start making merchandise, they start drawing up sketches for her character on the cartoon show, she's going to ride around this punky motorcycle, it's going to be big business. 
But Mugula forgot to tell Maxine about any of this. Maxine didn't know about any of this. All Maxine knows is she's wrestled two matches for WWF. She didn't get paid much. Most of her earnings went straight into Mugula's pocket instead of her own. And it just really doesn't seem worth it. So after two matches, Maxine quits WWF and walks away. As I said, she had no idea about the cartoon show, about the merchandise, any of those things. Coincidentally, Maxine leaves and the cartoon show and all that stuff goes to Mula instead. Yes, this will not be, I mean, this wasn't the first time and won't be the last time that Mula, you know, is effectively only in business for herself. May 85, Saturday Night's Main Event premieres. It's huge because it's the first time wrestling has been on network television, like one of the big three in over 25 years. And Cindy and Wendy are all over that first episode. It's Cindy's last appearance for the WWF, but she's huge. She's done so much for the company up to WrestleMania and all of this. Which is why it's fucking insane that she's not in the WWE Hall of Fame. I know it's a fake, I know there's like, no, there's no building, there's no real Hall of Fame, but you got Snoop Dogg, you got Kid Rock, you got Drew Carey in the Hall of Fame, but not Cindy Lauper, who's like responsible for WrestleMania. Like, all I can think is that it's literally because putting her in would have required Vince to acknowledge how important she was to WrestleMania and the formation of that, and he doesn't want to share credit with anybody. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the only thing that makes sense to me. So Wendy's still feuding with Moolah. She beats her on uh, an episode of Primetime Wrestling. They've been feuding for basically a year, but it seems like the Richter-Moolah feud is finally over. Richter's beat her again. Moolah's done. On to something new. As for the take titles, so as I said, they've been they've done nothing of any consequence. Like we've had we had no reason to mention them. Teams are just two women thrown together. There's no, like, teams, teams, you know, with, like, matching looks and names and, like, finishing moves and things like that. Until the Glamour Girls. Glamour Girls are the veteran Judy Martin and former champ Leilani Kai. They get together in the summer of 85. And the WWF decides, you know what, we're going to make the Glamour Girls the new take champs. Hey, breaking news, they won the titles this week at a house show in Cairo. There was, there was no house show. The WWF didn't do any shows in Egypt that year. They just say, like, the Glamour Girls won the titles at a, at a house show in Egypt. Congratulations, Glamour Girls. And then uh, <laughs> and then it's like three months before they even show up on TV, the new champs. The big story for women in the summer of 85 is Macho Man Randy Savage. He arrives in WWF, and he brings with him his new manager, his real-life wife, Miss Elizabeth. I say that this is the big story for the summer of 85, because as soon as Cindy Lauper leaves, Wendy Richter is basically an afterthought. Like, once Lauper leaves, Wendy is not featured regularly on TV. She's not given any big matches or feuds. Part of that might be that they had the summer whole, the whole summer plans were for her to feud with Mad Maxine, and Maxine quit, so now they got nothing. But, you know, if Hogan's opponent quits, you find a replacement pretty quickly. They did not bother to find a replacement for Wendy. She spends the summer doing nothing of any real consequence. She's completely directionless. Elizabeth is the only person who's getting regular screen time. The other reason why Wendy's push all but vanishes in this summer is because she's one of these uppity women who wants to know, how come I'm not getting paid as much as the men are? How come I have to wrestle Moolah 
over and over and over? Why can't we bring in new women that can wrestle, young women, agile women? Why am I getting paid what the men in the opening matches are getting? I'm the champ. Why aren't I getting royalties from my likeness being used on that cartoon show? It's just, it's just too many questions. It's too much of a headache. And Vince is not going to hear all this from some woman. No, this is, yeah. November 25th, 1985, Madison Square Garden. The scheduled match for the evening is Wendy Richter versus the Spider Lady. The Spider Lady is this new mask gimmick that Penny Mitchell has been doing on house shows. But when Wendy arrives that day, she sees Moolah backstage and gets suspicious because Moolah never shows up at shows unless she's scheduled to compete. But she goes out to the ring for a match, and then when the Spider Lady makes her entrance, right away, that's not Penny Mitchell. That's clearly Moolah under the mask. She knows it's Moolah. The fans know it's Moolah. You're like less than a minute of the match, and the fans are chanting Moolah, Moolah at the Spider Lady. Wendy knows that something is up, and she's like, you know what? I will shoot if I have to. And I can take a 62-year-old woman. So Wendy starts fighting back. She's fighting back so aggressively that on commentary, Jesse Ventura and Gorilla Monsoon, who don't really know what's going on, are like, wow, uh, this, is, this is weird. So Wendy thinks, as long as I can shoot on Moolah and I can take her, everything's fine. But she forgot about the referee being paid off. Moolah goes for a small package. Wendy kicks out at one. The referee goes one, two, three. And commentary is confused. Gorilla Monsoon says, what? oh, that was close. And then the bell rings and Gorilla says, what, what, what was that? Wendy's confused. She's pissed. She rips the mask off Moolah. She hits a legit backbreaker on her and goes for another cover. But the referee just stands there. The match is over. Victor throws some more shoot punches at Moolah, who runs away. And Howard Finkel announces the new champion, the fabulous Moolah. Backstage, Vince big tough guy that he is, jumps in the car and bails as quickly as he can before Wendy comes back. And a humiliated Wendy Richter goes straight to the airport, still in her gear, and leaves WWF. Princess Victoria says that Moolah was afraid. She knew the business was passing her by, and her time was over, and she could not accept that. So Moolah, aided and abetted by McMahon, uh, effectively derails the women's division before it even really had a chance to, to go anywhere. This, this night is known today as the original screw job to differentiate from the same thing they would do to Bret Hart 12 years later. Yes, the one that people largely know much better. But like, it's, it's really important to know where... It's easy enough to say there wasn't a significant women's wrestling division or women's wrestling push in the WWE prior to, you know, the divas and the post divas response, et cetera, et cetera. But that would be that that's kind of inaccurate. And also it diminishes the fact that there were women like Wendy Rector and other women we will be talking about who like made genuine impact and had genuine following, and for a brief window, could have been major, major stars. And there were very specific forces preventing that from happening. It's 1986. Mula is the champion once again. She's 62 years old, but she's got nothing going on. So when WrestleMania 2 rolls around, they just do her versus Velvet McIntyre with no build and no anything, and Mula wins in like 56 seconds. Something like that. 
a year a year earlier they were the second biggest match on the card huge build huge attention women's wrestling plummeted that much in the span of 12 months So the women's division is really struggling, but now the tag titles are starting to get a little bit on track thanks to the Glamour Girls. So 15 months after they quote-unquote won the titles in Egypt, they finally <laughs> debut on TV as a team. They've been, they've been the champs for 15 months, and they finally make their TV debut. The strength of the Glamour Girls is they have a look, they have an approach, and that's thanks in large part to Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart had approached Leilani Kai and Judy Martin at a swimming pool. He said, I like the way you work together, but your look is too old school. Jimmy Hart is the one who says, you should go blonde, you should get black and gold gear, and I will manage you, which is huge because there's no men don't manage women. That's not a thing. That's below them, right? And Jimmy Hart is one of the top guys in the company. He's managing the Hart Foundation and the Intercontinental Champion Honky Tonk Man at this time. But Jimmy offers to manage the Glamour Girls. They make their t- debut as its new team with a look, with an everything, and with a move. Judy Martin, in their first match, busts out this move never before seen in the WWF. On commentary, Lord Alfred Hayes says they call it the drip dry in England. We've never seen it in America. Judy Martin, first person ever to hit a powerbomb in the WWF. That's right. You heard it here. March 87, we get WrestleMania 3. There are no women on the cards. July, though, things finally pick up because we bring in, from Japan, the Jumping Bomb Angels. Jumping Bomb Angels are former AJW take champions, and they immediately enter into a feud with the Glamour Girls. Their matches with the Glamour Girls, great stuff. The JB Angels are pulling off things that you were not seeing in WWF at the time. They're doing springboards. They're doing top rope knee drops. Every match of theirs, I just I genuinely love listening to the commentary. If it's Vince, it's cringe and embarrassing. He doesn't know anybody's names. But if it's like good commentators like Rilla Monsoon, Jesse Ventura, Lanny Poffo, you get to hear these grown men who've watched wrestling their whole life and been wrestlers their whole life say things like, I've never seen a woman do that. I've never seen a move like that. The fans are going bananas. It's just, it's it, like I love hearing Gorilla Monsoon and Jesse Ventura being genuinely wowed by these women doing these things. Yeah, like if you can get over the fact that they can't remember their names and they're just calling them Pink Angel and Red Angel or whatever, like they the the commentary can't hide the fact that these are really impressive athletes. And what is even more fun about these matches is that you're seeing like legit like women's tag wrestling in these matches. And yeah, the Jumping Mom Angels are more accomplished generally as wrestlers than the Glamour Girls. But honestly, Leilani Kai and Judy Martin, they do a really good job like with this feud. And because they're put into heel mode, they don't have to do quite as much. But what they are doing is really, really well done. And the chemistry between these two teams is immediately felt in that very first match that they have. Yeah, these are these are we we talked about this about these matches before early on in our grit and glitter run. I highly recommend finding them. They're not that hard to find. Um, and they are like, they, they're so good. They're so much fun to watch. So the take division is finally heating up. We've got two teams. <laughs> we only got two teams, but they're putting on great matches. They are putting on great matches. So now the women's singles picture is looking dire. Is literally it's just Mula. There's nobody else. So Vince decides he's going to kill two birds with one stone. He'll bring in some new talent to compete for the women's title, and he'll screw over the AWA at the same time, because Vern Gagne's AWA is his only real competition at this time. 
So the AWA Women's Champion is this woman named Sherry Martell. At a house show untelevised in Houston, where nobody will hear about it and know about it until after the fact, Vince brings in Sherry and books Sherry versus Moolah, Champ versus Champ, and Sherry beats Moolah to become the fifth WWF Women's Champion. Then the next day, she signs with the a- with the WWF and vacates the AWA title. So that's a notch in a nail in the coffin for the AWA. The other rival that's starting to come around is Jim Crockett Promotions. Jim Crockett announces that they're doing their first pay-per-view ever, Starcade 5. It's going to be on Thanksgiving night. And Vince decides, I'm not going to let that happen. So he decides he's going to run a, a pay-per-view of his own on the same night. Uh, he'll call it Survivor Series, whatever. The name doesn't matter. The main thing is driving JCP out of business. And he goes to the cable companies and says, anybody who airs the Jim Crockett promotion show will not get any of my business in the future. WrestleMania 3 was huge. It drew a lot of money, so all the companies cave. Out of 200 cable companies, only five end up airing in Starcade, which is a huge bullet in the side of JCP. On that first Survivor Series, we do get a women's match. Five-on-five, Team Moolah versus Team Sherry. This match, though, is all about the take teams. It comes down to the Glamour Girls and the Jumping Bomb Angels as the final four. Again, we get, like, Monsoon. They're electric. Jesse Ventura. These bombs are unbelievable. And the Jumping Bomb Angels are the sole survivors. Big, big, huge, big business for them. This is a match that's great. Worth checking out. Also noteworthy, it's Moolah's final match as an active wrestler. She steps away from the ring finally. Sherry is the women's champ. Glamour Girls are the take champs. JB Angels are the challengers. Mula is just going to be a backstage agent and producer going forward. Two months later, early 1988, Jim Crockett Promotions announces they're returning to pay-per-view. Starcade was a disaster, but they're going to try again. They're back for Bunkhouse Stampede. So Vince decides he's going to run the Royal Rumble for free on TV that night. Rumble draws 8 million people. JCP is screwed again. At that Rumble, we get, I would say, the best women's WWF match, definitely of the 80s, maybe of the first 20 years of WWF. It's Glamour Girls, Jumping Mom Angels, two out of three falls for the take titles. The Angels finally win the belts. The crowd loves it. It's huge. They've been wrestling each other exclusively for like seven months, so they've got this thing worked out to a mm-hmm. T. Great match. Yeah, and the crowd energy with these matches is really worth noting because the crowd is so into it. February, Macho Man turns babyface. That's important for later. WrestleMania 4, no women's matches. During the summer, Sherry's feuding with Rockin' Robin, who's just arrived in the company, but they're rarely on TV. The Angels are still feuding with the Glamour Girls for the Tate titles. They're rarely on TV. But here's something fun. They are going to be on a show for AJW in Japan. Glamour Girls are going to travel over to Japan with the Angels. They're going to defend the WWF Women's Take Titles on AJW television. That's really cool. It's June 8th, 1988. Prior to leaving for Japan, Leilani Kai and Judy Martin managed to, I don't know how they did it, but somehow they managed to pull it off and they got Mula cut out of their payments so that Mula would no longer receive any cut of their booking fees. This has been a sore spot in their side and all the women's sides for years, and somehow Judy and Leilani pull it off and get Mula out of the equation. Yay! 
I'm sure there will not be consequences to this. Before they get on the plane, head booker Pat Patterson tells them, uh, you know, it's Japan. It's Jumping Bomb Angels. They're the baby faces. They'll, they're going to retain, obviously. At the same time, Moolah, who is actually leaving the WWF, phones up AJW, and she tells them, plans have changed, actually. New plan. Glamour Girls are winning the titles. The AJW bookers say, okay. And they go and they tell Judy and Leilani what the plans are. Judy and Leilani say, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why are you going to have us win the titles as heels in Japan? I, I don't like this. That, that, we got to talk to Pat. They call up WWF, but they can't get a hold of Pat Patterson, and it's match time. Latest information they have is the AJW booker saying somebody at WWF told them that they are winning the titles, so okay. They do the match, Glamour Girls win the titles. They get back to Japan, and Pat Patterson is pissed. He says, nobody in WWF changed the finish. You two screwed up everything. We were going to do you two versus the Jumping Bomb Angels for the titles at WrestleMania 5. That was going to be a huge paycheck for you. You know what? It's not happening now. They try to tell him about the phone call. They try to say, like, it was probably Moolah. He won't listen to them. Glamour Girls and Jumping Bomb Angels are all fired on the spot. The take titles are deactivated, and it'll be 31 years before WWE gets women's take titles again. Yep. July 88, Macho Man uh, says, hey, I'm going to team with Hulk Hogan at SummerSlam. We're going to take on Andre the Giant and Ted DiBiase. Where are the mega powers? Elizabeth's going to be in her corner. It's going to be great. That August, they do the first SummerSlam. Mega powers pick up the win when uh, Miss Elizabeth tears off her skirt to reveal her panties, distracting Andre. It, it, is, it is what it is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> November, Rockin' Robin defeats Sherry Martel to capture the women's title. It's the first time a women's match has been on TV in six months. It's Robin's first match in like nine months. Two months later, Mega Powers are done. You can't trust Savage. He's he's too sporadic, too jealous, too crazy. He's, mm-hmm. he's lost his mind. He keeps seeing Hogan like putting his arm around Liz, lifting her up on his shoulders. He doesn't like it. He's like, you've been lusting after Elizabeth. You've lust in your heart. And uh, so he turns and he snaps. WrestleMania 5, Hogan beats Savage. Savage dumps Liz, and he hooks up with Sensational Sherry. This is important because it marks Sherry's move from wrestler to manager, which is clearly her having the brains to jump off of a sinking ship. Two months later, Vince shuts down the entire women's division. He deactivates the women's title. He releases Rockin' Robin. June 89, women's wrestling is no more in the WWF. Yeah, because if you were doing the math, without Sherry there you basically have one women, one woman wrestler in your women's wrestling division. Yeah, so Robin's gone, the women's title is gone, going into the fall of 89. Sherry's the only woman left. Even Elizabeth isn't on TV anymore. Since Savage dumped her, she's just left TV altogether. It's just Sherry now. Savage beats King, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, to win the gimmick of King. And uh, going forward, it's going to be the Macho King and Queen Sherry. They start a feud with Dusty Rhodes because he's the common man and they're royalty. And Dusty ends up bringing a fan out of the crowd named Sapphire to be his new manager. He's like, I'm the common man. I'm going to pick a common woman, just a woman out of the crowd. Just this like middle-aged, elderly fan (laughs) named Sapphire. She's not a trained wrestler, but then like women don't have to wrestle in this company anyway. So it kind of works out, I guess. 
mostly Sapphire hangs out, and after every Dusty match, whether he wins or loses, they just get in the ring and dance. Yeah, and she's really adorable, and people love Sapphire for a reason. WrestleMania 6, we do get a women's match for the first time in four years. It's a mixed tag match, the first mixed tag match in WWF history. Dusty and Sapphire versus Macho Man and Sherry Martel, and Miss Elizabeth returns. She shows up in the babyface corner, backing Dusty and Sapphire. In a pre-match interview, Elizabeth says to me and Jean that she's going to be more active, less passive from now on. It's a new Miss Elizabeth for the 90s. And she actually comes through, because late in the match, she shoves Sherry. Sherry gets rolled up by Sapphire for the win, and all the babyfaces dance. Um, the fact that this move, that this whole, like, s- sequence works at all is because Sherry Martel knows what she's doing. Yeah, Sherry it does everything because Sapphire does not know how to wrestle. Was not she, trained she, how to wrestle. Was not given the opportunity to learn. Yeah, no, I mean it's not it's not on Sapphire. It is, but it, this is like yeah, Sherry Martel like actually trained wrestler doing trained wrestling moves, uh, making everyone else look like they know what they're doing. It's yeah, sure. It's if you are not a fan of Sherry Martel, then you're wrong, and you need to need to become a better fan. So Dusty and Sapphire pick up the big mixed tag win at WrestleMania. Summer of 1990, Sapphire begins receiving gifts from a secret admirer, jewelry, trips, things like that. We don't know who it's from. But it seems irrelevant because we got a date. SummerSlam 90, Sherry, Sapphire, one-on-one, our first women's singles match in three years. But Sapphire no-shows and Sherry wins by forfeit. Because it turns out all those gifts were from the million dollar man Ted DiBiase and Sapphire has sold out. She has bought in. She's valeting for Ted now. Well, she valets for Ted like twice and then she quits the WWF. Sherry would later say in interviews that Sapphire's love and admiration of Dusty Rhodes was genuine. She really like genuinely loved him as a person, thought he was like the greatest, loved being paired with him. When they told Sapphire that they were breaking them up and that she wouldn't be with them anymore, she broke down crying and quit the company shortly afterwards. Vora Wumble 91. Macho Man wants a shot at Ultimate Warrior's world title, but Warrior won't give him one. So they say, okay, well, we, we tried being reasonable, but you, were, you forced our hand. And Macho and Sherry show up and they screw Warrior out of the title, helping Sergeant Slaughter steal the belt. WrestleMania 7. Obviously, there's no women's matches. Sherry's the only woman around. Instead, it's Warrior versus Macho Man, career versus career. Sherry's at ringside. One winner, one person must retire. During the match, we see Miss Elizabeth in the crowd, like a couple of rows back, watching. Because she's, she's there. She wants to see if Macho Man's in-ring career is, is going to be over. And it is. Macho Man hits something like fucking 14 flying elbow drops in a row. Warrior no-sells them all and then just beats him. Clean. <sighs> the worst match I've ever seen in my life. I swear to God. It is so, It's infuriating. So stupid. So infuriating. Like, I've seen stupid matches, but I've never seen a stupid match that made me as angry as this. And Sherry's right there with us. Sherry's like, you hit your finishing move like eight times and that couldn't do the job. So she turns on Randy after the match. She starts kicking him and Elizabeth has enough. Elizabeth jumps to the guardrail. She grabs Sherry by the hair, throws her out of the ring. Randy comes through. He's looking around. What happened? Earl Hebner's like, it's her. 
Randy's like, it's you? She's like, it's you. They're both crying. They hug. <laughs> Savage's yeah. baby face again. Savage and Elizabeth are reunited again. And uh, a couple weeks later, he proposes to her live on TV. <sighs> it's beautiful. It really is. Meanwhile, Sherry goes off and becomes Ted DiBiase's new manager. He needs one. Sapphire quit on him. And uh, she wants somebody who, like, has money and who, like, knows what he's doing. And that's that's Big Ted. SummerSlam 91 is a match made in heaven. The wedding of Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth. It's the main event. You know, nobody gets to go on after Hogan. They do. They go on last. They have their wedding in the middle of the ring. And it's the it's not the first wrestling wedding ever but it's the first like huge one because nobody really gave a shit about cousin elmer and uncle joyce getting married this one is in the main event slot they get a video package they get confetti balloons and there's no shenanigans they have a wedding they kiss the fans go home happy that's it yeah it is just it's just a wedding like it's very touching it's very staged but it's very touching and nothing happens February 92, Sherry goes to Ted and says, I've had fun managing you, but with your blessing, I would like to go manage Shawn Michaels instead because he is a honky young guy and I have needs. And Ted says, I, I get it. Go have fun. Uh, you know, if anything changes, you're always welcome to come back here. I love when two wrestlers like split amicably, especially when there's two heels. They're just like, yeah, okay, yeah. See you around. Yeah, yeah. Guy got it. He's hot. Cool. Go for it. So Sherry goes to manage her boy toy, Shawn Michaels. She sings his new theme song about how sexy he is. It's a whole thing. Oh, yeah. I don't know if anyone knows it. It's, you know, only the greatest wrestling entrance theme in the history of wrestling entrance themes. A month later, Ric Flair starts feuding with Randy Savage. And the whole feud centers around the fact that Rick claims that uh, he boned Liz before she met Randy. He has nude pics of her. And uh, he's going to show the new picks on TV. At, or at the pay-per-view, sorry, because you got to pay money. Savage, who's like simmering with rage. He's trying to stay babyface, but that rage, you see it, the fury in his eyes. He's like bubbling up inside him. He's just like, he's like, push down, push down, push down. His response to all this is just, untrue. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Uh, during this, we also get... Uh, great great segments like vince interviewing miss elizabeth at home like she's at home he's in the arena they do it via satellite and he's asking her about these like nude photos that rick claims to have and he's like do you feel vulnerable liz do you feel you've been scarred for life and she said well yes yes vince people do feel vulnerable and scarred for life and other people have nude pics of them that are without their consent yeah or at least that is like Something that is said in a storyline that people are going to completely believe is a real thing. So WrestleMania 8, it's Flair versus Randy Savage for the WWF title and Liz's dignity. Savage wins with a roll-up, that's it. After the match, Flair kisses Liz. She slaps him. Savage tackles him. Um, Flair's in the locker room. He's like, I'm going to beat you again, Savage. I'm going to sexually assault you again, Liz. Uh, but he doesn't get a chance because she leaves the company two weeks later. That August of 1992, Randy and Liz divorced. They've been married in kayfabe for one year, but they've been married in real life for seven years. And the divorce is acknowledged in kayfabe, which is really rare. It's acknowledged in WF Magazine when they have Savage print a letter 
from him to the fans, explaining that these things happen and it is what it is. And Elizabeth leaves wrestling in the public eye. Big thing in all of this, it happened in 86, it comes to the public attention in 92. Her name is Rita Marie, Rita Chatterton, Rita Filikowski. She's born 1957 in New York. She has a brother who's four years younger than her, and he's a huge wrestling fan. All he talks about as a kid is wanting to be a wrestler when he grows up. But when he's 18, he dies in a car accident. She finds a notepad in his room with all the wrestling schools that he had researched and where he had planned on going. And in his memory, 22-year-old Rita decides that she's going to pursue wrestling herself. At the time, she's a divorced single mother working as a delivery driver and it turns out that she has a cyst on her lung, which prevents her from competing in ring. But it doesn't stop her from becoming a referee. She says it isn't exactly the same, but I don't like having my hair pulled anyway. So she contacts a wrestling school in New Jersey. After a lot of begging, they finally agree to accept her and train her to be a referee. She's there for a year and a half. She meets and befriends a guy named Mario Mancini, who's an enhancement wrestler for WWF. And she gets her referee license. August 84, WWF is running a show at some county fairgrounds in New York, and the New York Athletic Commission assigns her to the gig. So she shows up ready for work. Pat Patterson tells her to fuck off. He says, I'm looking for real referees, not some woman. He said, she insists, no, I'm here. I am a real referee. I'm here to work. Pat says, look, I'll give you the money that like you said you were going to get paid. Just go away. She says, no, I'm here to work the show. I am a referee. So he says, fine, you can ref the women's tag match. And then uh, he gets some of the other male staff to go to the women, Velvet McIntyre, Princess Victoria, Peggy Patterson, and Peggy Lee, and tell them, look, do us a favor, break her legs, make sure she doesn't come back. Luckily, the girls' club is stronger than the boys' club, and they don't. So Rita makes it out of that day safe and sound. She gets some more bookings, and eventually she lands on the radar events. Vince kind of likes the idea of having a female referee. He's doing this whole girl power storyline at the time with Cindy Lauper and Wendy Richter, and it could tie into that kind of nicely. So Rita makes her WWF TV debut January of 1985. At the time, Vince says, I want you to go full time with us. You'll get paid half a million dollars a year. You'll be on magazine covers. She's like, half a million dollars seems insane for a referee, but I don't really know anything about WWF's a huge company. I mean, they're like everywhere. They're on TV. They're getting cartoon shows and action figures and stuff. I, I guess that's how much referees make. But what do I know? But he warns her from the start. Just one thing. Don't get intimate with any of the wrestlers. She gets a, she, she does, she gets a brief mention in a Cosmopolitan article, and that's enough for her to be like, okay, I guess, like, yeah, things are on track. He has what he's given what he said he was going to give. So she quits her day job. She goes full-time for the WWF. She rests with them for a year and a half or so. She's not really on TV. She never gets any pay-per-view matches. So it's rare. It's hard to, for us to, now, even with the network, to find matches of her refereeing. It's mostly house shows and stuff. July 86, she approaches him at the TV tapings to talk about her future because she's not getting these big matches like he said, said she was going to. He's, she's not getting the magazine covers that he said she was going to. He says he doesn't want to talk business in front of other people. So why don't she just come to his limo? They can talk really quickly there. In the limousine, he unzips his pants and says if she wants a half a million dollar contract, she's going to have to satisfy him. 
He keeps trying to put her hand on his crotch while she tries to resist. He tells her to think about what it would do for her daughter's college education. He tries to force her to perform oral sex on him. She says no, so he rapes her. And when it's over, he says, remember when I told you not to mess with any of the wrestlers? Well, you just did. She goes to a lawyer who says, it's your word against his. Like, it's impossible for us to prove anything. She doesn't have any real friends in the WWF. There's no women around, obviously, in the company. Her only real friends are Mario Mancini and Andre the Giant. Mario confirms this whole story in 2022. He says he found her ringside after the incident, crying and shaking. And he warns her, he says, you're going to be gone from the company pretty soon. And he's right. And he says nobody would have spoken up at the time. Going against Vince would have got you blackballed, essentially, from all of pro wrestling. So Rita goes away, and she doesn't tell anybody until 1992, after both of her parents pass away. Then she finally feels less embarrassed that she can come forward and try to share her story. She goes on Geraldo Rivera's talk show in 1992. She tells her whole story publicly. But the statute of limitations on rape has run out, so she can't actually bring any charges against Vince. She gets a bartending job. She forgets about wrestling. Or tries to. January 93, her friend Andre the Giant passes away. At his funeral, she runs into Vince, and Vince says, nice to meet you. She tells him to go fuck himself, and she leaves. One week later, Vince and his wife Linda file a lawsuit against her, Geraldo Rivera, and his show's producers. The lawsuit says the story's a conspiracy, it's a smear campaign against us, it's a false rape charge, she just has an axe to grind. But the lawsuit gets dropped when Vince has to put all his money into the steroid trials. It's not until November of 2022 when the Adult Survivors Act goes into effect in New York. This is a new law signed by the governor of New York which allows adult survivors of sexual assault one year to take legal action against their attackers, even if the statute of limitations has expired. Two weeks later, a lawyer representing Rita files a suit against Vince asking for $11.75 million in damages. Her lawyer says that she's passed a polygraph test she has multiple sources who have corroborated her account. And a month later, the Wall Street Journal says that Vince agreed to settle out of court to prevent the case going to court. Vince's lawyer says, look, nothing happened between them. We just settled out of court. We just paid her off because we just wanted to avoid the cost of going to trial. That's all. There's no way. It's not because we felt guilty or anything like that. July 92, Shawn Michaels is being managed by Sherry Martel. Uh, this is a really fun feud to lighten the mood. <laughs> yeah, to, to shift gears. <laughs> to shift gears for a minute. We get heel Shawn Michaels versus heel Rick the Model Martel. Sherry's at ringside. She's got the hots for both these guys. Yes. Oh, my God. It's so funny. It's so well done. Sherry Martel is so funny playing horny. She, like, she really wants to see the two guys, like, lock up and, like, get their hands on each other because you know like it's like turning her on but then she puts a stipulation in where nobody's allowed to hit each other in the face because she's like okay just not the face because <laughs> you can't hit the face it's so good I, in the history of wrestling there'll be lots of wrestlers who play horny but i don't think any of them get close to get close to the comedy level of sherry martell in these in these in this storyline in these beats it's so funny and it's really nicely fascinating because she's sean's manager but Sean, as the feud goes on, it becomes clear that he doesn't care about her. He only cares about the Intercontinental title. Whereas Rick does kind of 
think that she's cute or does kind of have a thing for her, but she doesn't see it because she's blinded by her obsession with Sean. Unfortunately, it all comes to head a couple months later when Marty Jannetty returns to the WWF. He goes after Sean, who had put, taken him out of action by throwing him through a window. Marty's plan is to throw Sean through some glass by smashing a mirror over Sean's head. But Sean pulls Sherry in the ring. Marty accidentally hits Sherry over the head with the mirror. Sherry's laid out cold. Also, sorry, I'm going to continue this because it just, it's a positive note in so much, so much negative. Um, Sherry Martell is also really funny when she gets knocked out unconscious, which she does a lot. And it's very, very funny every time. That mirror shot to the head is finally enough for Sherry to wake up. She dumps Sean. She starts hooking up, not hooking up, she starts managing Marty Jannetty instead, right around the time that Monday Night Raw premieres in January of 93. Unfortunately for Sherry, she chose to take Marty on as a client right around the same time that Sean decides to pull some of his patented backstage bullshit and get Marty fired. So Sherry pivots and she starts hanging out with Tatanka instead. WrestleMania 9. Tatanka versus Shawn Michaels for the Intercontinental title. Sherry's in Tatanka's corner. Shawn has in his corner a new woman called Luna Vachon. We get Luna attacking Sherry at ringside, clotheslining her, body slamming her on the floor. And a week later on Raw, we get a legendary segment because it's really like a proto-attitude era segment. Sherry and Luna, they do their, they start off doing a typical WF thing, like they insult each other, like, you have bad breath, yeah, well, you're ugly, yeah, well, your mama's uglier, just, you know, that kind of juvenile stuff. Then they get into a cat fight, and you think, well, okay. But then they get into, like, this is not your, this is not your papa's cat fight, you know? Sherry suplexes Luna on the floor, Sherry's top gets ripped off, she's fighting in her bra, Luna gets pantsed, she's falling into the audience in her underwear, Slaughter carries Luna to the back. She runs back out. She's choking Sherry. Sherry's ripping off Luna's clothes. They get separated again by agents. This segment goes through the commercials. It's like 15 minutes long. It's great. It's it's awesome. And you get you come out of this, and you're like, hell yeah. Like, I am excited to see Sherry and Luna one-on-one. This is going to be a good match when it happens. Then months go by. Just m- more months of them, like, talking trash. Uh, Neither of them wrestling. Just, like, more months of them insulting each other. Luna starts dating Bam Bam Bigelow. Sherry keeps hanging out with Tatanka. Finally, we get to July 1993. It's an episode of Superstars. And we are told, tonight, Sherry, Luna, one-on-one. They've been feuding for four months. We haven't had a women's match in the company in three years. So we're so excited to see Sherry and Luna one-on-one finally. And then we don't get the match. Bam Bam comes to the ring, he backs Sherry into the corner, he threatens her, Tatanka comes out, Tatanka clears the ring, and then Sherry's fired for failing a drug test. She's been smoking marijuana, she's been taking some pain pills, she has, te- like, her body's sore, she was arrested for 10 years, she's been self-medicating, that's not good enough for WWF, Sherry is fired, and she never gets to have a match against Luna, one-on-one, after yeah, that I mean- hot build. Sherry Martell, during her time as an active wrestler, may have had to wrestle any number of people who were far less trained and proficient in the ring than she was. Um, for a while, she was one of the very few people carrying that division and having any form of women's matches on a regular, um, in addition to all the physical stuff she does as a ballet, which is extensive. Um, so, yeah, she smoked a little pot to deal with that pain, maybe taking some pills on the side as well. Sure, definitely probably the 
very worst drug habit happening in WWF at the time. I'm sure of it. So we go into the fall of 1993 with Luna Vachon, the only woman left in the company once again. Once again, we're back to just one woman in the company. No, We haven't had a women's title in four years. We haven't had a women's division proper in a long time. And that's where we stand. That's where we stand heading into our upcoming 12th episode of Women's Wrestling Entertainment, fall of 1993, featuring the long-awaited return of the women's division with the arrival of Alundra Blaze. enjoyed this you know very condensed rundown of the you know early history of women's wrestling in the wwf like there's so much detail that harley was not able to include in this so so many things that i didn't know that i was learning for the first time through this podcast so it really like even if you just join our patreon for a month or two so you can catch up on these episodes i absolutely recommend it uh we we this is a fraction of what we cover in the actual show Yes, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Patreon at Grit Glitter Pod. If you support us on Patreon, five bucks a month gets you the Grit and Glitter archive. So first three seasons of Grit and Glitter episodes, exclusive. Can't find those anywhere else. And we post new new archive episodes every Saturday. Every episode of our ROH podcast, Talking Honor, 11 episodes of Women's Wrestling Entertainment. Like I said, everything we just covered, but even more elongated. We talk about every single women's match in this period. We talk about people I wasn't able to cover here, like Penny Mitchell and Peggy, Peggy Lee. And we, you know, we go into like the, the life of Luna Vachon before she arrived in WWF. Also stuff like that. I'm really proud of those Patreon episodes we did, I, that we do. Uh, it's a lot of fun for me. I learn so much. I really try to find as much information as I can, connecting the dots on these things. And yeah, we're going to keep going. Keep going into 1993, Alundra Blaze, the Nakano, Birth of Faye, the return of the WWF Women's Division. And we'll explain, you know, why that didn't last very long either. Why that fizzled out. Why Alundra Blaze walked away from the company. Why Nakano was fired. All that is upcoming on our next couple episodes. In the meantime... Thank you for listening, folks. As always, we will be back next week for another episode of Grit and Glitter. I think that's everything. It's a happy birthday to me. It's my birthday today. That's right. Happy birthday. And this birthday is in like two weeks. We're but, both... Uh, uh, a little bit farther than that, but definitely. Yeah, yeah. a couple of weeks. March. We were both 1985 babies, so we were both turning 39 this year. That's right. It's our last year of our 30s. Yeah, make it count. For what? <laughs> I, I I don't know. <laughs> don't ask me. <laughs>